Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open and be good soil. Speak to us this morning, we ask. We need you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and just tell them uh, to uh, pay attention. And tell them to pay attention for a long time because I'm not really sure how long this is going to take today. But as you saw how Daniel, I mean how Daniel, how Gabriel did beautifully read the text, that it was quite a long text and a long text means a long explanation. And so here we go. Today we continue traveling with Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary trip. Last week, we saw God set apart Barnabas and Paul for them to go and preach and plant churches as they continued fulfilling the theme of the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, to be witnesses. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Barnabas and Saul are literally now going to the ends of the earth throughout the whole Roman Empire witnessing Jesus Christ. They have left their home-based church of Antioch in Syria and they've made their way to the island of Cyprus. This is Barnabas's home island. They go through the whole island and like we learned last week beautifully from our brother Christian, the only fruit that Luke mentions is that Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, believes. You can imagine after maybe days, weeks of preaching, if you only see one person except Christ, you might be a little discouraged. But not these guys. And so they finish their work on the island, and this is where we pick up our text. Our first point is transition and invitation. Transition and invitation, verses 13 to 15. In verses 13 and 14, we see that Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, they leave Cyprus from Paphos, and they sail about 320 kilometers across to Antilia. It's the port of the city of Perga, which is in the region of Pamphylia in Asia Minor. You can see there's a map that can kind of help us see from where they are to where they're going. This is where they start off here, and then they go up to Antilia, and they're in that region of Perga. When they get to Perga, John Mark, Barnabas' cousin, he leaves the missionary trip. We don't know why he leaves, but it is definitely for a negative reason. At the end of verse 14, Luke tells us that Barnabas and Paul, they don't stay in Perga, but that they continue to Antioch of Pisidia. You guys see it right up there where it's almost cutting off on the slide? That's Antioch up there where they're traveling from Perga to Antioch. And so they're going from about sea level and they're going to climb through the mountainous terrains and the cliffs which were flood-prone to this Antioch, which was about 3,600 feet above sea level. 
this 160-kilometer stretch of road, it was extremely difficult because you were literally climbing through the mountains. And not only was it a difficult journey, but it was a very dangerous one because there were many thieves who lived in these mountains who would ambush travelers, beat them, and steal all of their possessions. Who wants to plant a church in Antioch of Pisidia? Knowing that the road there would be extremely difficult. This is very likely the reason why John Mark abandons the missionary journey. He's still young, unprepared. He's already faced the opposition when he was in Paphos of the people that were there. And now in light of this crazy, dangerous journey, he's like, I'm out of here. But Paul and Barnabas, they arrive in Antioch of Pisidia. And they wait for the Sabbath to be able to go to the synagogue. The Antioch in Pisidia, just to make sure we know, it's different from the city of Antioch in Syria where Paul and Barnabas started their travels from. You guys with me? Their home church was in Antioch of Syria. And now they're finding themselves in another Antioch in Pisidia. Wow, William, why? Well, just so you know that in the ancient world, in the first century, there were 16 cities named Antioch. 16. Why, William? Well, because when Seleucius Nicator, who was the emperor of the Seleucian Empire, reigned, he chose to honor his father, Antiochus. And he honored his father, Antiochus, by naming a city in every region in the empire as Antioch. That's the reason why this one name is given to 16 different cities. This Antioch of Pisidia was a civil and military center for the provincial area as a Roman colony. It had a very large Jewish population. Paul and Barnabas' strategy whenever they entered a city, was to first find the local synagogue where, Jewish, where Jews gathered so that they could first preach to their own people. Why? Well, because Paul and Barnabas, they loved their own people and they wanted to reach them first. Also because Jews knew the Old Testament promise of the coming Savior. And so Paul and Barnabas... They're hopeful that as they come and share the message of the coming Savior, Jesus, that their own people would embrace this good news. Paul and Barnabas arrive at the synagogue, and the text says that they sit down. A synagogue service consisted of reading the Shema, then a prayer, and then there would be a reading from the Torah, from one of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. And then a passage of one of the Old Testament prophets would have been read. 
And to finish off the service, one of the religious leaders or the rulers of the synagogue would come up and give a word of encouragement. They would come and preach a sermon just like this. And this sermon would be based on the reading from the Torah and from the Old Testament prophets. Does that make sense? And so as Paul and Barnabas are sitting there, once the, the book of the law was read and the Old Testament prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, the leaders, they send an attendant to Paul and Barnabas asking if one of them have this word of encouragement to bring. Why? Well, because Paul would have been known by this, these Jews. Because if you know Paul, whose Jewish name is Saul, he studied un, under the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis from the first century. And so they would have known who he was, and it was customary that when there were dignitaries or people who were important in their mix, to invite them to come and to share the sermon. We also know that God has sovereignly orchestrated this moment for Paul to preach. I want you to know that out of seemingly nothing, Paul is given the opportunity to preach. And I want you to know that God will give each and every one of us moments and opportunities for us to share Jesus Christ with the people around us. The question is, are you and I ready? And are we sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit to take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us. I more hear from people is this, I don't know what to say. But if we are witnesses of Jesus Christ, we need to be ready in season and out of season to be able to come up and to testify of the faith that we believe in. So be ready. Our second point, Jesus fulfills history. In verse 16, we see Paul stand up and he motions to the people. You guys see that in the text? He motions to the people because he's trying to get their attention because he's about to start preaching to them. We see that through the book of Acts, this is the common way of sharing Jesus Christ. Peter preaches to people in Acts 2 and in Acts 10. We see Stephen preach in Acts 7. We see Philip preaching in Acts 8. It's clear that the primary way to communicate the message of Jesus Christ to a group of people is through the preaching of the Old Testament. All these preachers, they anchor what they are saying about Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. And they do this whether they are speaking to Jews or to Gentiles. It doesn't matter. The, the Word of God, the Old Testament, is the foundation from which they are speaking and showing that what God said He would do, He has now come to do. It's not off of a whim. It's not their own ideas that they're inventing or coming up with. I was speaking to somebody last week, and we were talking about following Jesus. And the person turned to me and says, oh, but I can follow Jesus my own way. 
You follow Jesus your way, I follow Jesus mine. And I looked at them in the face and I said, no, you can't. Because there's only one way to follow Jesus. It's not my way. It's not Centerview's way. It's his way. We too have to conform our thinking, our living to what Jesus says and to what God says concerning who Jesus is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through. This is not like all cities get to Rome. Right? I mean, all roads lead to Rome. This is like there's only one way to God. It is through Jesus Christ. I want you to know that this is still our job today. To continue faithfully preaching Jesus as the Savior through the Word of God. The faithful proclamation of the Bible is the way that God uses for unbelievers to come to know their sin and their Savior. You see, being a witness of Jesus demands that you and I go and preach. I pray that we would continue to raise up men and women in our church who will faithfully preach Jesus through the Word of God. Paul begins his sermon. And he does so by acknowledging the two groups of people that would have been in the synagogue service. He starts off by saying, men of Israel and God-fearers. The term men of Israel is a general term that would have included every man and woman that was there that would have been born as a Jew. He then speaks to those who fear God. These are Gentiles, Greek-speaking people who would have become proselytes, converting to Judaism through circumcision. We've said this multiple times. I think everybody by now knows what circumcision is, right? If you don't, Roger has a great explanation. He's also speaking to other God-fearers. So proselytes, those who converted to Judaism, and those who believe that the God of Israel is the true God. And so they come to the synagogue to learn the word and to follow the Old Testament as best they can. You guys remember someone who was a God-fearer? Cornelius. Remember, Cornelius was a God-fearer, but not a proselyte because he, didn't, he wasn't circumcised, but yet he knew that the God of Israel was a true God to be followed. So these are the people that are there in the synagogue that, P, that Paul is going to preach to. And what Paul is going to do now is he's going to give us a historical retrospect of the major events of Israel's history. He's going to look back to try to help the people that are there understand how God has powerfully been working in the midst of his people. And the first thing that Paul says is that God is the one who chose Israel. In verse 17, he says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. God is the one who took the initiative. He sovereignly picked Abraham, a pagan, 
and he made a covenant with him. The word covenant is just another word for the word promise. He makes a promise with Abraham that from his descendants would come a mighty nation. And that this would be God's special people. Paul, he identifies himself with the people of Israel. He says in this verse, our fathers. He includes himself as a Jew. As someone who would have been chosen by God. Because he belongs to the people of God. And our fathers here refers to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we see that God demonstrates his power by choosing a pagan man named Abraham from where a mighty nation will come. And then what does God do? God demonstrates his power through the Exodus. God leads Jacob and his family into Egypt because of a famine that spread through the land. And that when the new Pharaoh comes into power, who no longer knows of Jacob and his family, he ends up enslaving them in Egypt. And this enslavement over God's people lasts 400 years. Yet, look at what it says in the text. Yet God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. God uses the difficult circumstances of slavery in Egypt to make his people great, enabling them to grow in number. And then, God uses his uplifted arm, his power, to deliver Israel out of Egypt. How is God's power demonstrated? The ten plagues. We heard of the last plague, the killing of the the firstborn. And not only does God show his power that way, but when Israel is being pursued by the Egyptian army, what does God do? He parts the Red Sea. God uses his power to show everyone, Pharaoh, all of the Egyptians, and even his own people that he is working on their behalf. At the Exodus, the Old Testament tells us that 600,000 Israelite men are freed. If you were to count women and children, it's believed that the nation of Israel is about 2 million people. But God's faithfulness and power doesn't stop there. Paul continues telling us that God is faithful with Israel through the wilderness. He doesn't just deliver them out of Egypt, but he faithfully sustains them for 40 years in the wilderness. And I want you to hear the language. And if you're a parent, I think you'll understand. Verse 18. And for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. God put up with Israel. Why? Well, because Israel continually sinned against God and complained. 
They had left Israel, they had left Egypt, seen his power, and they constantly complained of being wanting to go back because it would have been a lot better than being in the desert. But do you know why the time of wilderness lasted 40 years? Because it shouldn't have. But it lasted 40 years because of their disobedience. And yet what does God do? Puts up with them. Like their sandals don't waste. Their clothes doesn't waste. And we get this image of a father that is faithful dealing with a difficult child. Actually, Moses puts it this way in Deuteronomy chapter 131. Look at what it says. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a what? As a man carries his son all of the way. That you went until you came to this place. So God is with Israel throughout the whole time in the desert. And then they come to the land of God. God gives Israel a home. The promised land. And in verses 19 and 20, we see, And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took place, all this took about 450 years. Who's with me? Say amen. God brings Israel through the wilderness and look at the language. Who destroys the nations? Who? God. Who gives them the land? And he gives it to his people as an inheritance. God fights and God gives to his people. Israel is a beneficiary of God's faithful work. Did, did, did you hear me? Paul is trying to sh show the people in the synagogue all that God has done regardless of their participation. And in spite of the lack of their participation in obedience. God gives them the land. And he says that all of this takes about 450 years. How do we get this number? How long is Israel in Egypt? 400 years. How long are they wandering in the desert? 40 years. How long does it take for God to conquer the land? It takes about 10 years. That's how we get to this 450 number. And in all of it, God is at work. So now they have the land of God, and now we see the leading of God. God doesn't stop there. He continues to be with his people. Look at verse 20. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Israel lives now in the promised land, and they are facing opposition from the rival nations around them. But even worse, they're facing opposition from the nations from within the land that is there that they have not kicked out. Are you hearing me? God told them to expel the pagan nations from the land of Israel. And because they don't, they suffer. When I don't fully obey God, I can expect 
to continue facing challenges because of my lack of obedience. We shouldn't be surprised when obeying God at 50% of the time, we continue experiencing 50% of the problem. Yet, as, un- as enemies come against Israel, God raises up judges from among the people to lead them. God raises up the person of his choosing. He raises up people like Deborah, Gideon, Samson. And he leads his people this way, Paul tells us, all the way up to the prophet Samuel. And then we see the king of God. And when we get to the king of God, we only get there because of the sin of Israel. Let me say that again. We only get to the king of God because of the sin of Israel. Why? Well, because up until this point, God has been leading his people through judges whom he has raised from the midst of the people. But now Israel, what did they want? They want to be like everybody else. We want a king. We want to be like all of the other nations. We want to be like a king. And in wanting a king, they are rejecting God from leading them. And if you look at the text, what does God give them? He gives them what they want. They are rejecting God from leading them, and they would prefer having a man. So God gives them one. God gives them Saul, the son of Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin. And he leads them for 40 years. And if you remember the story, Saul is a man who has a great outward appearance. But he is not a man who wants to do the will of God, nor does he want to obey God. It's amazing how God will at times give us what we want in our disobedience to teach us through the consequences of our poor decisions. Did you hear me? There are things that we ask for that we can't see today, tomorrow, are bad for us, but God gives them to us anyway, and that through those things we're going to suffer, and God's going to be like, see, I told you, but I'm still faithful, I'm still here. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody here ever do that with their kids? Because as your kids get older, they need to experience failure, right? Because no matter how much you, as mom or dad, tell them, they're only going to learn when they fall flat on their face. Am I lying? Did anybody here always listen to their parents? Who? Not me. Why do you think my nose is like so crooked? Somebody here raised their hand? JR. We're going to pray for JR later. (laughs) So God gives them what they want. And with time, God eventually removes Saul. And who does God raise up? King David. We see God's constant work and faithfulness on behalf of his people. Verse 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, after my heart, who will do all my will. Was King David a perfect man? No. He wasn't. But when King David sinned and his sin was was made apparent to him, he quickly repented. That's why he was after God's own heart. It wasn't that he was any better than you and I. But King David had a desire to know God and to obey God. And it was to King David 
that we see that God makes a promise of a coming Savior. David was Israel's greatest king who led the nation to be firmly established. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, God promises David that one from his descendants will have an eternal kingdom that will last forever. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And forever is how long? Ever. We fast forward from the moment of when God makes this promise. And we see that Israel will begin to intensely want to see this promise become accomplished as they're led into captivity under the Babylonian Empire. The kingdom of Israel splits between north and south, ten tribes and two tribes, because Israel's kings become disobedient. And that over time, what that means is that the rival nations around them come and take the people of Israel into captivity. And while they're in captivity, this longing desire grows in the midst of the people of wanting to see God's king come once again and rescue his people. I I don't know about you. (laughs) I don't know about you. But what I know usually in my own life is this. We don't listen to God. We go and screw up, and then we run to God. And this is the pattern that we see Israel do. And Israel now finds itself in a place where they're longing for the promise of God to be fulfilled, for the king whose kingdom will be established forever to arrive, to deliver them once again so that now they can be again a free nation. Then look at what Paul says in verse 23. Of this man's offspring... God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Everything that Paul has said about Israel's history is to bring his audience to this point, showing them that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of history, showing them that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of history, to show them that Israel know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of history. So as you look at chaos today in the world, and as you wonder about the riots that we see happening around us, and chaos and fires and smoke in the air, that smells like plastic, apparently. That all of history is going to continue. Because Jesus the Savior is the fulfillment, not of just everything that has happened, but everything that is happening and everything that will happen. And this should give you and I a sense of peace and comfort. That in the midst of not knowing where the world is headed, we know that Jesus Christ, the promised one, has come. And if he's come, we have nothing to worry about. Paul uses... This title, the Savior, showing that the man's offspring, meaning that David's descendant, 
Someone that would come from, Daniel, from, from David's lineage would come and that he would save. This is what the term Savior means. It means to come and to deliver. And in this way, God would repeat what he had done in the past. That in the same way that God delivered Israel from out of Egypt with his power, that God would once again come and deliver his people through Jesus Christ showing his power. Paul's point is that God has done all of this, that God has accomplished what he said he would, and that the evidence that God fulfilled his promise would be able to be seen in the person of Jesus. How do we know that God fulfills his promise to David? Jesus came. That's Paul's point. And before ending this part of Israel history, we see now that Paul will leapfrog over a thousand years of history from King David coming to the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. Verses 24 and 25. Before his coming of Jesus, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all of the people of Israel. And as John was Finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. John was Jesus' forerunner. He was the one who came before Jesus preaching a baptism of repentance. Why? Because he was calling God's people back to himself so that when Jesus came, they would be prepared and ready to see him. Does that make sense? Who is hot in here? Who? Man, I am feeling the power of God today. We're going to get this fixed. John's role was to prepare the Jewish people of the first century. He was a voice crying out in the wilderness so that when Jesus appeared, and as he was proclaimed as the Savior, they would be ready to receive him. And you see that John himself acknowledges that it wasn't him. Because we see in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in verses 19 to 28, that the Jews and the religious leaders came up to him and asked, Are you the Savior? Are you the Christ? And John said, No, it's not me. My role is to point to him. And John says, Listen, I'm a, just a simple servant. I'm not even worthy of untying the Savior's sandals. He has this posture of humility, understanding even as he's coming to the end of his ministry that it's not about him, but that it's about Jesus. God orchestrates all of the events of Israel's history. Why? To bring a Savior. He did all of this for his people, and who fulfills all of history? Who? Jesus. I want you to think about whether you are conscious of God's faithful work in your life. This is what Paul is trying to bring to the memory of the people that are listening to him. Are you aware and conscious of the work of God in your life? 
Can you see the moments and the places where God has intervened, shown up, tried to get your attention? Can you vividly see all that God has done for you, your family, and the people around you? I hope and pray that you have. Jesus fulfills prophecy. In verse 26, we see that Paul again addresses the audience. Again, calling on the Jews and calling them now sons of Abraham. Why? Because they're God's covenant people. And again, the God-fearers, those who are there, Gentiles, but who are following the God of Israel. And Paul makes this bold statement to them, saying that now what has come to them? The message of salvation. That now salvation has come to them. And again, Paul includes himself in this, right? Look at what he says. To us has been sent the me- this message of salvation. So, so now everything that God has said has come to fulfillment through Jesus. And now this message is coming to us. And how does Paul explain this message as coming to us? By describing the Savior of the message. In verses 27 to 29. Jesus came to his own people in Jerusalem and to the religious leaders. And yet those who knew the word of God and who were waiting for the Savior, they failed to recognize both Jesus and his work. That's what Paul is saying. Listen, they got so comfortable with hearing the words of the Old Testament prophets spoken repeatedly in the synagogue every single Sabbath that they no longer understood what the word of God meant. The message became dull to the point where they became ignorant to the truth that when Jesus appeared, they rejected him. And it wasn't just enough that they rejected him. The religious leaders condemned him to death. And they condemned him to death without even knowing that they themselves were fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. The Old Testament prophets predicted that Jesus would be rejected by his own people and that they would, in doing so, would be fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. How tragic. Paul says what? Though finding no guilt in Jesus of any crimes, the religious leaders make up lies, false accusations, and insist that Pilate puts Jesus to death. Paul's point is that they had no problem killing an innocent man, sentencing him to capital punishment. We know that Jesus was executed by Roman crucifixion, being nailed to the cross. Listen closely. There are 15 prophecies from the Old Testament that these religious leaders participated in when they rejected Jesus. Did you hear me? 15 prophecies that these religious leaders participated in when they rejected Jesus, sentenced him, and put him to death. And then Paul tells us what? That his body was taken from the tree, that cross where he was, cro- when he, where he was nailed, and that his body was put in the tomb. I just want to say this. Please stick with me. Not understanding the word of God will always lead to wrong behavior. Did you hear what I said? When you and I don't understand the word of God, it will always lead to wrong behavior. I caution us to never become dull to the truth of the word of God. That we would never become indifferent to what God says and promises. Because if we do, we will miss out just as the religious leaders did. And even worse, we will find ourselves fighting against God. If you sit here and you come here and you hear and it goes in and out and there's nothing registering in your head, be careful. Be 
because we're going to see at the end what happens. There's only one thing that comes upon you. It's God's judgment. How can you say that, William? I'm not the one saying it. The Bible is. So if you're here and you're indifferent to what you're hearing, and it's not touching your heart, it's not convicting you, it's not working in you, you need to start praying that God would open up your heart and your eyes. Because we could be just like the religious leaders where the Savior was right in front of them speaking to them and they said no. I'm not the one saying it. And then we see, finally, the resurrection, the power of God. Paul now gets to his main argument. Amen? And his main argument is to prove that Jesus is the Savior that God has sent because God has raised him from the dead. In just having spoken of the death of Jesus, he immediately comes right after that speaking of what? The resurrection. And his audience would have been aware that there would have been people who would have been eyewitnesses knowing that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Because if not, Paul would not have made this comment. That there would have been those who would have known where Jesus' tomb was. And that now that tomb was what? It was what? It was what? As God demonstrated his power by raising Jesus from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. And this could be verified because the tomb was empty. And Paul doesn't just stop there as if that were enough proof that he was saying. But Paul gives two testimonies to further press in and to prove that there is abundant evidence that God raised Jesus from the dead. What were those two testimonies? That there were eyewitnesses and that there were prophecies from the Old Testament that say that God would raise Jesus from the dead. And what do we see first? We see this in verses 33 to 35. The proof of the resurrection of Jesus. And we see, sorry, Am I skipping ahead here? I am, of course. I'm so excited. Sorry. Verse 31. Come back with me, my friends. The testimony of eyewitnesses. Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to many days after his resurrection. Isn't that what Paul says? You guys with me? That there were many, those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Paul is referring to the apostles. And Luke tells us, you guys remember in Acts 1-3, that Jesus spent how many days? 40. He spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection. And now the apostles are what? They're eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus alive. And they were the ones who were going and proclaiming that Jesus was the Savior. And in verse 32, what does Paul say? This is good news. Jesus the Savior being raised from the dead. This is what Paul and Barnabas have come to the synagogue to tell these people. The word good news in the original language is the word evangelion. Paul is literally saying, I've come today to you to evangelize, to share good news. Jesus, the Savior that you have been waiting for, is alive. He died on the cross. His own people rejected him. You don't. And there are many Many eyewitnesses. Are, are you with me? 
many eyewitnesses. Paul will later on say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that what? That more than what? 500 people have seen him alive. 500 people. And then only a few had fallen asleep. Which means that what? The majority were still alive. There are many eyewitnesses who can testify to the fact that Jesus was alive, that he died, but then God showed his power by raising him from the dead. And not only are there eyewitnesses, but that there are proofs from the Old Testament. And Paul, what does he do? He gives us three texts. The first one we see is Psalms 2, verse 7. Showing that Jesus was the Son of God that was begotten by God. Yeah, I'm going to go through this quick because we're all getting really sweaty. At least I am. Jesus is the Son of God. How does God beget him? God begets his Son by bringing him forth from death. The, the, the image here is that he goes and grabs Jesus who has died. And that he brings them back to life. He begets his son. He goes back and gets him and brings him forward. Because that's what the prophecy says. Is that not what it says? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then he quotes Isaiah 55 verse 3. Saying, as for the fact. In verse 34. That through the resurrection of Jesus, God gave his holy and sure blessings, which he had promised to David, to the people. The resurrection of Jesus, listen, was the vehicle that God used to bring about his blessings to his people. Now, these Jews and God-fearers, listen, are what? beneficiaries. Remember how Israel was a beneficiary of the promised land that God gave them? Because who fought? Who gave? And now God is saying, now you are beneficiaries. The ones who are going to receive the blessings of God. And we're going to see what those blessings are in verses 38 and 39. And finally, Paul quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. Showing that Jesus' body never saw physical decay. It saw no corruption. Jesus was in the tomb for three days. You would assume that his body would begin to what? Deteriorate. But it didn't. Why? Because there's an Old Testament prophecy that said, and you will not let your Holy One see corruption. When Jesus raised from the dead and the witnesses saw him, guess what they saw? A glorified body that was completely intact. Which means that they recognized Jesus. They knew it was him. They looked, he looked the same. Are you, are you with me? There was no part that was falling apart. He wasn't a zombie. Oh, it looks like Jesus, but he's all wrinkled and shriveled up. And he's going. <laughs> I joke because we don't understand how powerful what God does here is. Holy One is completely restored. His body never decays, completely whole. And then to reinforce Paul's argument in verses 36 and 37, what does he do? 
he tries to make it clear that this prophecy could not be about King David. Saying what? Hey, David lived, served God, but with time, what happened? He laid with his fathers. Meaning that these Jews would have known where the tomb of David was. That he had died. And, and, and if David had died and not been risen from the dead, then it can't be about David. It must be about another. And this other, whose body never decayed, but who died, rose from the dead because of the powerful work of God. Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Jesus fulfills all of history. The resurrection of Jesus is the climax of Paul's argument. Jesus is the Savior that dies on the cross who God vindicated by raising him from the dead. Do you know what vindicated means? The word vindicated means that when you look upon someone and you say, what you did is enough. Back. Does that make sense? God looked upon his son's death and says that is enough to accomplish to cover the sin of the world. And I'm going to bring you back to life to show that what, I, that what you did is powerful enough. So when you think of what vindicate means, it means to be able to bring back because of what one has done as being sufficient. Jesus fulfills all of history. Jesus fulfills prophecy. Finally, and all God's people say, Jesus fulfills forgiveness of sins. Verses 38 to 41. In verses 38 and 39, Paul gets the attention of his audience one final time. And this time, he calls everyone what? Brothers. Now there is no people of Israel. Now there is no God-fearers. Now he calls everybody in the synagogue brothers. This word is, is, is plural for brothers and sisters. Everyone here, people that I'm speaking to, everything that Paul has said up until this point is to lead them, listen, to respond to the message of Jesus. And what Paul does, and what does he want everyone to know? That this man, Jesus, that through him, there is what? forgiveness of sins and it is proclaimed and it is by him that everyone who believes is free from what the law of Moses this would have been a radical statement for Paul to make in a synagogue to Jewish people we don't understand the weight of what he's saying coming back to a bit more of even talking about what Juan spoke of to now declare that people could be forgiven of their sins through a man and now justified before God through a man was unheard of. This is not how they envisioned their Savior, was it? No. So let's try quickly to understand this. The law. Jews had the law of Moses. And the law of Moses made provision for sinful people to be in right relationship with God. So we see that as Israel comes out of Egypt, they have already the image of the blood on their doorposts, exemplifying how they are covered over by the blood of the Lamb. Right? That, that God would not counter sin against them the way that he would against the firstborn sons of Egypt. Right? And that as they come out, they now are given the law. 
And the law would say, in order for you, my people, who are still sinful, to be in relationship with me, you have to sacrifice an animal. And so we get the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which was offered to individual people. An animal stood as a substitute, taking on the person's sin in order to satisfy God's wrath. And that the blood of that animal would cover over the person's sin. And so if you sinned, you were now not in right relationship with God. And in order to be in right relationship with God, you had to bring an animal. And you would place your hand on that animal, transferring your sin to that animal to stand in your place. And when that animal's blood was shed, that blood would wash your sin away. But we know this is just happening on the outward, right? And not only that, even more, every year, Israel longed for the Day of Atonement. So it wasn't just their personal sin that had to be dealt with, but it was the sin of the whole nation. One day a year, the high priest would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and he would have to sprinkle the blood of an animal on the Ark of the Covenant so that now the whole nation's sin could be covered by the blood of the animal. And now Paul is saying, <laughs> now Paul is saying you don't need to do that anymore. There is now forgiveness of sin through a man. Jesus. The Savior, and, and not just that, Paul is trying to show them the insufficiency of the law. You see, because when you sinned, you had to bring an animal and slaughter it so that you could be forgiven. And when you sinned, like, I wouldn't have enough animals. I don't know about you. I wouldn't own enough animals to cover my sin. Maybe one of you would have, just one would be enough. But for me, I'd be like, I, got, I need like 30 animals today. I need 30 if it was yesterday, Saturday, more, maybe like 50. Because on the weekend, you sin more because you're not working, right? I don't know. And it's kind of like, all of these animals are mine. And the priest is looking at you, wow, what did you do this week? Like, uh, but, but that's literally how they, how they lived. Because God is holy. And you can't approach a holy God with your sin. And so your sin has to be dealt with. And in order for your sin to be dealt with, there needs to be someone who takes on your sin in your place, in my place. And now Paul is saying you are freed from the law of Moses. You are freed from that. You are now justified standing holy before God because now there is forgiveness of sin through the man named Jesus. Praise God! You wonder whether they would be sitting there and understanding what they said. I encourage you to come back next week for you to see the response. It's not what you think. They're not going to respond in a positive way. Then now that you and I would understand that our sin is covered over by the person of God through Jesus Christ and that the powerful work of God is seen through Jesus. You no longer need to go to the temple and bring your animal and to try to attain God's forgiveness through what you can do because what you can do is never going to be enough. You know, my friends, there is nothing that you and I can say or ever do to merit the forgiveness of our sins. You see, God 
Paul is trying to show these people that God has always been powerfully at work among his people throughout the whole Old Testament and even in the day when he was writing this to show that it is God's power through what Christ Jesus has done that is able to forgive us of our sin. And just to cap it off, even just to make sure they get this, do you know how Paul ends this? He ends this by giving them a warning. Beware! Like, beware how you're going to respond today. Are you going to scoff? And he's quoting Habakkuk 1, 5, Old Testament prophet. When God sent Habakkuk to the people, and he was telling the people to turn back to God, and they scoffed at the prophet. And God's judgment came upon Judah. How? Through the Babylonian invasion, taking them all into exile. And the prophet was saying, God is working in your midst through me, trying to lead you to repentance. And if you scoff and mock, you will see God's judgment. And now, what does Paul do? He uses that as a warning to the people in the synagogue as he's preaching, saying, how are you going to respond? And he's pleading and saying, don't respond in the same way. And not just that, but you, we saw already who rejected Jesus. The religious leaders. And guess what would come upon them for their rejection? Judgment. It's clear in our text that if you respond in a negative way to Jesus Christ, and what did Paul say? What is the way? that we are able to embrace the forgiveness of the sins through the man, you have to what? Believe. Saw it, you guys saw it in the text, right? I don't want to jump over that. What did he say? For those who believe. That there's forgiveness to this man for those who believe. You must believe. And this is the challenge and the warning. And Paul is saying, if you don't believe, and if you are unwilling to see the work of God, all you can accept, expect to receive is what? Judgment. Stand with me. Please listen. To reject Jesus as your Savior is to reject the only way by which God has made it possible for our sin to be forgiven. If you choose to be undecided or indifferent to what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, the only thing left for you and I is what? Judgment. Why? Because we willingly choose to reject God's salvation. But yet, we can have the opportunity to see the power of God at work throughout all of history. And to see the power of God working throughout Jesus the Savior. And that Jesus is the Savior because what does God do and show His power through Him? He raises Him from the... And there is salvation through who? And the forgiveness of sins through who? Through Jesus. And this leaves us with what? An opportunity to respond.
How does Paul say we must respond? Believe. Father God, I pray that on this day, I pray that this day for people in this room would be a life-defining, changing moment for them to see and to know clearly from this text that Jesus fulfills all of history, Jesus fulfills all of prophecy, and Jesus fulfills the forgiveness of sins. That there is no way that any one of us can come into your presence because you are a holy God and our sin must be dealt with. We see clearly that the law was insufficient. But now, through the man Jesus, there is forgiveness of sin. All our sin. All our sin has been washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilt on the cross on our behalf. And we know that that was enough and that it was powerful because God raised Jesus from the dead. This is the guarantee of the forgiveness of our sin. And so, God, we thank you today for powerfully be at working in our midst on our behalf. I pray, God, that this would spur on true, genuine belief in our hearts. That we would be the kind of people to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior.